Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, Guide for Daily Meditation and Prayer Around God's Word. It is Saturday, May 27th, 2023, right? Yes, 23. Today on Saturday, we like to look at the week past, but also to look forward to tomorrow, Sunday. And so today we'll do that by considering the work of the Spirit and the Tower of Babel. All right, first, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay, our psalm this week, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. We'll do a meditation on the psalm, Psalm 51, as we like to do. Let's see here. There we go. This is not by accident, nor without significance, that Psalm 50, Hebrew 51, is the only psalm prescribed to be recited in its entirety during every celebration of the Eastern Orthodox Divine Liturgy, right? And Divine Service 3, we say most of it as well, created me a clean heart, the offertory. Whether in the liturgy of St. Basil or St. Chrysostom, it is the prayer of a murderer and an adulterer that the priest must pray when the congregation commences singing the cherubic hymn in preparation for the great entrance of the holy gifts. So in the East, it's used as an offertory as well. At that moment, the priest takes the censer and starts sensing the entire sanctuary area. 
While he does this, that's incense, by the way, he says, and is expected to know it by heart, the whole psalm that begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your great mercy. It is chiefly this Eucharistic context, I submit, that provides the proper avenue to the deep meaning of that psalm, popularly known from the first word in the Latin verse as miserere. It is a psalm in which, using the words of that great sinner David, one prays for God's mercy and forgiveness. At the great entrance, we stand at the threshold of theophany, that is, uh, uh, God's appearance, right? Let us who mystically represent the cherubim and sing the thrice holy hymn to the life-creating trinity, holy, 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 now lay aside all earthly cares that we may receive the king of all who comes invisibly upborn by the angelic hosts. At that point, we are just moments away from chanting the hymn that Isaiah and St. John heard chanted by the seraphim, the fiery ones at the throne of God, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. It is at that awesome moment that we think of our sinfulness and say, as did Isaiah at that moment, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, verse 5. The true sense of our sinfulness does not come from measuring the distance between our own conduct and the grandeur of the moral law. Oh no, it is only in the overwhelming presence of the Holy One himself that we sinners know how utterly sinful we are. Such a sinner was Job. In in chapter after chapter of the dramatic book that bears his name, Job kept arguing that he was an innocent man, that he was suffering unjustly, and that he did not deserve to be punished, and so forth. But then God abruptly reveals himself to Job, who now finds himself standing naked in the presence of the Holy One, and suddenly Job is a man of altered mind. No more can he claim innocence. No, never again can he point to some alleged purity of his conscience. The pretense is over. Job must simply repent. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42 verse 5. This overwhelming holiness of God, the source of profound repentance, is particularly related to the coming of the Holy Spirit, for it is our pride and sinfulness that grieve and impede the operation of God's sanctifying Spirit. This is important, obviously, to tomorrow, to Pentecost. Um, This is something that doesn't happen in any other context, that um, you know um, God um, as he truly is, as a just and justifying God. It only happens in the context of the divine service. Everywhere else you may have a sense of some overwhelming godliness, you know, like in the midst of an earthquake or a tornado or at the foot of a great waterfall. You're like, wow, God is awesome. Or adoring the, the northern lights on a particular, you know, clear night. You say, well, how awesome is God? Okay, um, but not a God who actually convicts of sin, right? and then makes just in the forgiveness of sins. That happens in the divine service. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why people are intimidated to be in regular attendance in divine service, is that they're intimidated to be in the presence of God and of something other than themselves, you know, a holiness that is external to them, but given to them. Um, But I also think uh, it's one of the reasons why people treat the divine service so casually. So it's kind of the complete opposite of that where they don't think of it as coming into the, the presence of the divine. Um, and so they, they, they lack that sense of awe and majesty. Some of this is related to our um, just casualness in divine service. And uh, 
it's, it's a dynamic or a tension or a dialectic or a dichotomy is probably the right word. Where on the one hand, uh, we don't want people to be so uncomfortable that they uh, will not, like say, bring their children in or something like that. But on the other hand, we do want them to have that kind of unease that um, that you ought to have a proper fear and reverence. And so, um, you know, the architecture of the church is different, the way the pastor and maybe even the people dress is different, the kind of music we sing is different. And there's other rites and rituals um, that can set this apart for the purpose of communicating that awe and majesty of God according to his word. Uh, and as he mentions, the use of incense is one of those things that um, our churches have not historically rejected, um, but practically speaking in America have not, maybe just because we simply didn't have access to to the kind of, um, you know, because of trade routes, to the same kind of incense that you would have had uh, in the old world. But regardless, um, uh, this is the reason for being uh, calm and quiet and um, restrained. You know, that's a, that's a kind of reverence. All right. Once again, the Eucharistic context, Lord's Supper, um, provides an illustration. The recitation of the Miserere is a preparation for the praying of the Epiclesis, that, that solemn prayer for the sending down of the Holy Spirit to transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of the Lord. All right, so we defer on that. We actually drop the Epiclesis from our liturgies as Lutherans. It doesn't. It's not transformed. It is by the word, but the spirit, of course, comes alongside the word to do the thing. Before he ever begins that awesome invocation, the priest is made to say, "Create in me a clean heart of God, and renew a right or a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me." In the Slavic tradition, these words are said again at the time of the Epiclesis itself, used as the deacon's refrain to the priest's thri- thrice re- re- recited prayer. O God, who did send down your Holy Spirit upon your disciples at the third hour, take him not from us, O good one, but renew him in us who pray to you. The liturgy of St. Basil, the priest even prays that God will not, because of the priest's own sinfulness, withhold the grace of your Holy Spirit from these gifts here spread forth. It is the strong sense of the holiness of the face of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit that keeps the miserere, Psalm 51, from being morbid or morose. Wash me yet more from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin is the proper concomitant to heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities is our condign answer to God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. To cry out, Abba, Father. Continued repentance is the appropriate response to ongoing theophany, God's appearance. Since we are all, quote, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we do not cease to pray over and over, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Yeah. So that's a helpful point too, is in the face of the awesome presence of God, what can we do but confess and be forgiven? All right. It's nice to be in focus. All right. Uh, memory verse for the week. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1 verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1 verse 21. Table of duties to widows. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. 1 Timothy 5 verses 5 through 6. To everyone, the commandments are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13 verse 9. 
I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. All right. Old Testament reading for tomorrow is from Genesis uh, chapter 11, the famous account of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore the name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of all the earth. Okay, so uh, famous account, of course. This is one that I think most of us are familiar with. Of course, we also get the word babbling, you know, like with infants or toddlers. They babble at us. Of course, that is not confused language, but it's just unintelligible language to us. Notice why he confuses their language. It's because when they share a common language, then um, they also can share common purpose. And if that language is contrary to God's language, that is from his word, uh, then their common purpose will also be contrary to God's common purpose, right? And so uh, this is a, a clear inverse, or this is going to be inverted, I should say, with the account of the Pentecost, right? As we've been studying all week, where the <clears throat> where the uh, the disciples are given to speak to each person in their scattered language, their native tongue, from wherever they're from, Arabia or Rome or um, Cappadocia or Pontus or Asia or wherever it is, but they're given to speak one common word, which is the gospel of forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. There is only one source of unity that's um, lasting and God-pleasing, and that's to be united around his son, the word of his son, for the forgiveness of sins. Any other kind of unity is a false kind of unity. Any kind of hope is a false kind of hope. Right? Any other words um, can be used for good or ill. There's only one word that is good, and that is the word of forgiveness from God, right? Um, so when we're looking for things like church unity, it should be around the word of God, when it, uh, or it must be around the word of God. We're looking for um, harmony within our family. Again, it's going to be um, to share God's word together and to forgive one another. When uh, we're looking for uh, communities that, that have lasting and long um, and, and, and common value, it's, it needs to be around God's word um, or uh, it will always be well, a source of tension and control and manipulation and uh, people um, oppressing one another, right? And they often do that with words, as we've learned quite uh, eloquently here in the last few years. Oh, we never said that, right? And you're like, no, you're a liar. Well, who's to, who are you to call me a liar, right? Um, or the this whole pronoun uh, nonsense, right? It's nonsense, right? You're, it's abusing language to convey um, an untruth, a falsehood. Right, is that you can identify as something other than who God has made you. That's a lie. Right? Um, and all of our accommodations 
over the last few decades, I suppose, or at least the last 10 years, to say, well, there are people who have gender dysphoria, which is a psychological thing. Well, we don't ask why. That's the first question. Um, and two, um, why are we playing this game? You say, yeah, I understand that you feel this way. Um, I, actually, faith doesn't care about your feelings, right? What God has said about you is all that matters, regardless of how you feel about yourself or what you think of yourself. Right? God will reform that, will change that through his word. So we're, we're really going about it the wrong way and embracing actually lies and falsehood um, and doing so with word games. Right? Um, and I would suggest this is actually God um, scattering us again, um, or he's going to scatter us again if he isn't already, and uh, maybe you know, re- return to a time of um, you know, more of like a feudalism, right? which is warring tribes and things. It doesn't sound pleasant at all, and yet it may be God's, God's will for us. All right. Um, listen to what Luther has to say. Um, there's all sorts of things <laughs> from his Genesis lecture. I think I've shared some of this before with you. All right. Um, as we stated um, previously in the third chapter of Genesis, it is the nature of sin to lie still and to be quiet for a time while the day is hot, that is, while lust and sin reign in the man, and man, overwhelmed and engrossed by Satan, pays no attention to the word of God but disregards it as if God were sleeping and simply did not exist. But toward evening, after the heat of the day, the Lord begins to walk about in paradise, his voice is heard, no longer a pleasing and delightful voice, as it was before sin, but a terrifying one, which Adam is unable to bear. Therefore he hides amongst the trees and wants neither to hear nor to see God, but cannot remain hidden. The poets fancied that souls were terrified by the bark of Cerebrus, but real terror arises when the voice of the wrathful God is heard. Again, this I think this is one of the things that keep people from divine services. They think this is the only voice they're going to hear. The wrathful voice of God is heard, that is, when it is felt by the conscience, or what used to be called the heart, right? Then God, who previously was nowhere, is everywhere, right? Seems like he's chasing you. He's, he's on your tail all the time. Then he who er- had earlier appeared to be asleep hears and sees everything, and his wrath burns and rages and kills like fire. These are expressions of Holy Scripture to which one must become accustomed. God, quote, comes down, not really or essentially, for he is everywhere, but he ceases to to take no notice, he ceases to be long-suffering, and begins to reveal, punish, and convict sin. Right? I think this is the thing people are most afraid of, is that God might actually notice. <laughs> but as I said on the Banned Books podcast that we recorded yesterday, um, Jesus already knows your browser history. <laughs> Why are you trying to hide it from him? All right. Therefore, the smug people who used to think that he was far away now see that he is present, and they begin to tremble. Right? And again, this is the Tower of Babel. All this is intended to frighten us, that we may learn to beware of sin. For God will not ignore it forever, but just as by his arrival, he finally frightened and killed Adam, Cain, and the entire world in the flood, so at some time he will destroy us also, if we do not forestall him through repentance. For the godly, however, the descent of the Lord is most delightful and most welcome, and for this reason they earnestly request it in fervent and unceasing prayers. But the flesh often makes them have doubts, for the Pope, the Turk, and other enemies of the Church appear to have established their power to such an extent that no force seems to be able to overthrow them. Yet someday, right, this is helpful for us today, who feel the weight of oppression right, and tyranny, yet someday God will descend and scatter them both. Over and against our weakness and the smugness of the ungodly, Scripture bears witness that finally God descends, punishes, 
and opens his eyes, ears, and mouth. This the godly believe, but with feeble faith, while the ungodly smugly disregard it. Hence, we must be warned by the example before us and learn this. This is the Tower of Babel. The longer God puts up with idolatry and other sins, and the longer he pays no attention to them, the more intolerable will his wrath reveal itself to be later on. Therefore, we ought to consider it a great kindness if he does not permit our sins to go unpunished for a long time. Psalm 30 verse 5 exhorts the church to give thanks because the wrath of the Lord is but for a moment and because he loves life. It says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning, and so forth. Psalm 89, if the children forsake my law and do not walk according to my ordinances, I will punish their transgression with the rod and the iniquity of, with scourges. This is, this is a wrath of grace when the punishment comes quickly and calls us back from sin. Right? So we actually want God to do that, to take notice and to repent us. Right? But when God pays no attention to sin and seems to con- connive at it, then there follows an unbearable wrath that has no end. Such was the wrath of the flood and the wrath that Moses mentions in this passage. God permits the descendants of Ham to be prosperous and permits them to continue in sin as long as they are building the tower in the city, but then the flood, or then there follows a disaster that is all the greater. Let us recognize, therefore, that a horrible judgment, such as no one has experienced since the beginning of the world, is in store for the Pope and the Turk who have been prospering for so long. God has never disregarded the ungodliness and the extreme blasphemies of anyone else for so long. Therefore, the punishment will surpass the punishment of the flood or of the dispersion, and of the sodomites, for the wrath against them will be everlasting. All right? We actually pray that God return, and that he judge the peoples, and that he do so quickly and swiftly, because we know um, the longer these things are persist, the uh, the greater the sin is increased. Right? Uh, Vicky asks, like the globalist agenda, yeah, I would agree. Um, and you think it's not actually been that long. It's been um, well, well known for at least 100 years, I suppose, and maybe... Uh, maybe a couple hundred years, all set in total, right? But, um, you know, the, the problem is, is that when God exercises his wrath, it it seems that it's upon everyone, right? And others get caught up in that. So uh, for our comfort and our hope, uh, that is, if his wrath is, is meted out against, say, our nation in particular, uh, for our ungodliness, um, that we believe the gospel and that we trust in the, in the um, resurrection of the body and life everlasting, so that it, as we said in the memory verse, right? Uh, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether I live or I die, glory be to God, right? And uh, we have this kind of uh, unhelpful, firm grasp on um, this life and this creation that uh, rather than receive it as a gift, we hold on to it as as our sacred treasure, which um, actually that ought to be the Lord. Yeah. Uh, we've been reading the Acts reading, so I'm not going to actually read it again. Uh, we've read it a couple times this week now. We've read through it. But you can see that tomorrow uh, we'll start, start with the day of Pentecost and then uh, end with the Joel reading. We actually don't go all the way through as we did the last couple days. All right. Um, but I think tomorrow uh, what would be helpful for us is a uh, catechetical sermon on the work of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, revealed, obviously, in the Acts uh, of the Apostles here at Pentecost. But we're going to use, um, well, maybe we should look at the large catechism, I think, on the third article. All right, which you remember is, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Luther says, I, I cannot connect this article, as I have said, to anything better than sanctification. Through this article, the Holy Spirit with his office is declared and shown. He makes people holy. Therefore, he, we must take our stand upon the term Holy Spirit because it is so precise and complete that we cannot find another. For there are many kinds of spirits mentioned in the Holy Scriptures, such as the Spirit of man, heavenly spirits, and evil spirits. But God's Spirit alone is called the Holy Spirit, that is, He who has sanctified and still sanctifies us. For just as the Father is called Creator and the Son is called Redeemer, so the Holy Spirit from His work must be called Sanctifier, the one who makes holy. But how is such sanctifying done? Answer, the Son receives dominion, by which He wins us through His birth, death, resurrection, and so on. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit causes our sanctification by the following. The communion of saints, or that is the Christian church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That means he leads us first into the holy congregation and places us in the bosom of the church. Through the church, he preaches to us and brings us to Christ. This is the key. I, I do not understand um, those who call themselves Christians and yet um, believe that they can remain a Christian outside the Christian church, to which the Holy Spirit has called them. Right? It's actually a, it's an act of unbelief. Neither you nor I could know anything about Christ or believe on him and have him for our Lord unless it were offered to us and granted to our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. The work of redemption is done and accomplished. Christ has acquired and gained the treasure for us by his suffering, death, and resurrection, and so on. But if the work remained concealed so that no one knew about it, then it would be useless and lost. So that this treasure might not stay buried, but be received and enjoyed, God has caused the word to go forth and be proclaimed. In the word, he has the Holy Spirit bring this treasure home and make it our own. Therefore, sanctifying is just bringing us to Christ so that we receive this good, which we could not get ourselves. All right. Then we'll talk about the means that he used uh, to sanctify us tomorrow, that is to bring us to Christ. All right. And you probably remember them, but they're right there in the creed, right? Uh, what, what were the, the things? Obviously, the church, the forgiveness of sins the resurrection, promise of the resurrection, and eternal life, right? And it's through this word that he calls us into it, into the church. So we'll, we'll cover that tomorrow. All right. Here's our hymn, See the Lord Ascends in Triumph. Did we talk about this hymn? I don't remember if we did. So let's do that. I know I looked up the author, which is Christopher Wordsworth. Probably told you about him, son of uh, uh, Wordsworth. The poet Henry, right? This ascension hymn, called in Julian, One Grand Rush of Holy Song, is probably the finest poetic work of Anglican cleric Christopher Wordsworth, 1807-1885. It was originally published in 1862 in this hymn collection, The Holy Year. The original hymn contained ten stanzas, of which the first five are included in LSB. Stanzas 6 through 10 have sometimes been published as a separate hymn. The biblical imagery in this hymn sees Christ depicted as the king enthroned, Enoch, Aaron, Joshua, and Elijah. Wordsworth weaves doxology, topology, prophecy, and doctrine together in a way that should serve as a model for modern hymnody. I agree, says Todd Peppercorn. The style is similar in many respects to a Greek ode, but this only heightens how Wordsworth uses the connection between the prophetic character of the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Christ. All right, so we have Psalm 2. Um, obviously, we had uh, Psalm 110, right? All 
sourced here. Um, note, one of the few substantive substantive changes made to this text appears in stanza five. All right, so let's scroll down to that. The original stanza was addressed to Christ. Thou hast raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places, there with thee in glory stand. Jesus reigns adorned by angels. Good, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Uh, mighty Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. While there are no theological differences in changing from the second to the third person, grammatically, some of the doxological character of the stanza is lost, or at least made into a more theological reflection than praise. All right, so that's uh, the author of the essay, Todd, uh, suggesting, Pastor Peppercorn is suggesting that it may have been a demoting, a, 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 what do you want to say? A defection? No, that's not the right word. Uh, it wasn't a positive change. It's, it's it's weaker, right? And I think it's because it's more descriptive and less active, right? And we we love active language. Christ is doing things, right? Um, not just uh, reflecting on what he might be doing, but actually having him do it <laughs> is always helpful. All right, good. So let's sing. Truth unknown to come, he 
power he knocked is translated to his everlasting home. Now our heavenly heaven enters with his blood within the veil. Joshua now is come to Canaan and the kings before him quail. Now he plants the tribes of Israel in their promised resting place. Now our great Elijah offers double portion of his grace. He has raised our clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places, there with him in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels, and with God is on the throne. By our mighty Lord's ascension, we by faith Uh, it really is a fine hymn. I suppose you're wondering about the rest of the stanzas. Are you rest wondering about that? I bet you are. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it. Uh, it should be on hymnary.org. Of course, they changed the title. All right, let's go to Christopher Wordsworth. We'll do that first. Text. All right. Uh, see him who goes before. Uh, see the conqueror mounts in triumph. All right. There's only three stanzas on that one. That's not going to work. Uh, let's see. How about... Uh, I don't know which hymnal to look at. How do you know which one to look at? To find all the stanzas. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't know how to find all the stanzas. So... Uh, I guess we'll have to... Oh, maybe if I do this. What hymnal did he say it was in? That's what we need to do. See all pre-1979 ones. All right, now we can add or remove fields. Let's add the date. There we go. Uh, 1870. Should we try that one? Uh, that only has four, son four stanzas. That's not going to work. 1880. Church of England hymn book. No text. Oh, that's too bad. 1878. Uh, yeah. Lift us up from earth to heaven. Give us wings of faith and love. Gales of holy inspiration wafting us to realms above. That with hearts and minds uplifted. With the Christ our Lord. Um, may dwell where he sits enthroned in glory in the heavenly citadel. Ooh, I like that language. All right, what did he call it? Church, The church year? Let's see if we can find that. That was the name of it, right? All right, this is really good podcasting right here. The church hymnal. All right, the hymnal. Huh, I guess nobody scanned it in. Oh, that's too bad. Okay. I don't know where to find all the rest of the stanzas, but uh, that's too bad, because that would have been handy. Uh, see the Lord. 
maybe if I say 10 stanzas, why don't we put that in the, nope, that's only three stanzas, that's not going to help me, hymnology archive, aha, here we go, I'm going to link this in the chat, you guys can go look at this at your free time, all right, that's at least eight stanzas, Lift us up from earth to heaven. Give us wings of faith and love. Gales of holy inspiration. We read that. See him who has gone before us, heavenly mansions to prepare. See him who is ever pleading with, for us with prevailing prayer. See him who, with sound of trumpet and with angelic train, summoning the world to judgment and with clouds will come again. Right, Holy Ghost, illuminator, shed thy beams upon our eyes. Help us uh, to look up with Stephen, first martyr, and to see beyond the skies where the Son of Man is standing in glory standing at, is at God's right hand, beckoning on his martyr army, succoring his faithful band. Beautiful. All right. So you can go read that article. Very interesting. All right. And the chat died. <laughs> so it goes. I cannot see your chat window, but I'll assume you're there. All right. Let's continue with prayer. O King of glory, Lord of hosts, uplifted in triumph far above all heavens, leave us not without consolation. But send us the Spirit of Truth, whom you promised from the Father. For you live and reign with him and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, we've been saying the table of duties to widows all week, so let's pray for them. Heavenly Father, comfort all widows who have lost their husbands and are left all alone. Give them strength and courage to put their hope in you and to cry out to you for help night and day. In their loneliness and sorrow, draw them closer to your divine services and deliver them from the temptation to seek fulfillment from the pleasures of life that can never truly satisfy. Teach them to believe that they have a sacred they have sacred calling as widows to live by faith in the greater bridegroom who has uh, laid down his life for his bride and in whom alone are pleasures forevermore. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray for widowers. Heavenly Father, comfort all widowers who have lost their wives and are left without a spouse to love. Deliver them from self-centeredness and despair. Give them strength to flee from fornication and every form of sexual immorality. Fill the void in their lives with the gospel of your Son and the study of your word. Teach them to pray to you for help to live in their calling, to serve their neighbors in love, and to commend their future to your gracious will. Grant them your grace to remain single or provide them with a faithful Christian wife. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And finally, O Lord, as you have loved us in place of yourself and thereby fulfilled all of God's law on our behalf, teach us to walk by faith in your love in all that we do, to live in love and self-sacrifice towards others in our callings, and to pray for everyone in need, seeking not our own glory, but the welfare and salvation of our neighbor. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray this day in Thanksgiving with Tanya, celebrating her anniversary. Pray for Matt and Allie, Dan, Kevin and Kim, Gary and Julie, Kevin and Mandy, and Doug. Continue to give thanks to God for the service of Mrs. Polster and Mrs. Larson as teachers here. Pray for our catechumens. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Dale and Pam, Joe, Kelsey, Marion, Naomi, 
Christopher, Mar- Marcy, Brad, Gus and Eileen, Ron, Doug, Hoshea, Pat, Wade, Wendell, and Darlene. Pray for our homebound, Marcella, Walt, Dan, Paul, Dolores, Merlin, and Pauline. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church this month for Lutherans uh, for Life. And we pray an intercession for an increase, uh, for the preservation increase of hope amongst us and for the government and those in authority. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I've done wrong, excuse me, from, from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. It's good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. I'm going to have to work on my camera and get that back up and going. Seems to be glitchy. All right. Um, let's see. Tomorrow, divine service, 9.30. 9.30. One more week of that. And then after that, we'll, we're moving to 9 o'clock on Sunday. All right. Uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you on Monday for Memorial Day. Maybe we'll have a little particular meditation there for you. Uh, as I remember those who have uh, died in service of our country. All right. We give thanks to God for them. All right. Lord be with you all. Keep you safe. We'll see you in the morning for uh, divine service and Bible study. See you then. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.